0: This is the Lydia Project Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello, everyone, and
1: welcome back to The Lydia Project. My guest today is Dr. Carolyn Russell. She's a medical doctor and a qualified counsellor who spends much of her time either in counselling or in teaching others about mental health. This particular episode is quite long, and while I did cut out quite a fair bit of it, Carolyn is just so full of wisdom and clarity that I felt it best just to keep what we have. So, if you're used to listening to shorter 20-minute long podcasts, then this is one that you may want to break up into, say, four listening sessions. Otherwise, listen on your favorite podcast app, and it should save where you stop off. Carolyn really is full of wisdom, and she tells some wonderful stories of God's work in her life that I think are likely to leave you praising God and being thoughtful about His work. So, here's Carolyn. Carolyn, it's really good to sit down and chat with you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming to be a part of the Lydia Project.
2: Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure.
1: And very excited about this. I find myself saying at the beginning of so many of these interviews, and I I feel sorry for the listeners because it's the same old, but I always feel when I speak to somebody that one of the first things I think about is when I first met them. And I don't know if you remember, Mm -hmm. but I look back and I've seen God's hand in our lives in so many ways. And one of them that's very clear for me is putting my husband and I into the Bible study Mm -hmm. that we were a part of when we first met you when we arrived in Brisbane. And... I loved that time in the Bible study for lots of reasons, but one of them was you, and just being so incredibly, what is the right word, one that pops into mind doesn't quite fit it, impressed, but just really encouraged by your wisdom and your clarity in explaining things and your clear joy for the gospel. And, yeah, you left quite a big impression on me. I have felt very privileged to get to know you a bit better the last couple of years, and I'm very grateful to God for that. I do remember you telling me about how you and Norton met, <laughs> which is, I love those stories. But I've never actually heard your testimony. Like, I don't know how you came to become a Christian, so how about we start there? Okay. How did you come to know the Lord?
2: Well, I'm one of those people who grew up in, in inverted commas, in a Christian heart. Close commas sometimes as i'm my age i reflect on that and i think what does that actually mean but back then it very much meant in our community a group of people a family who went to church and who took church seriously that's what it meant in my day my first memory of church is lying on pads we called them kneelers in the Mm -hmm. Anglican church lying on them, putting them on the back pew of the church and when I went with my dad because he was in charge of the, of the service this night and had to help the minister. And so I went with him. Mum was at home with my baby brother. So I must have been about six. So my this is my first real memory that I could have. And I lay there and I listened to my dad pray through the whole service. Oh, wow. And I have memories of my dad praying of that very, very special prayer We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. And he said it with tears in his eyes. Mm. And that was the first night I can remember my dad orally praying. And so that was the home that I was brought into. uh, And my dad read the scriptures over and over and over. When he was 86, he died. And he was very proud of the fact that he had read the scriptures right through, beginning to end, five times Mm -hmm. without sort of ever stopping, as well as doing his other study. He was a member of the Gideons, so he used to go and give Bibles to young people and people in nursing homes and stuff. And he was a faithful man all his life, Mm so, yeah. Wonderful. It was wonderful to watch that, yeah. And he still remained a larrikin. (laughs) He could have great fun, take boys on camps and uh, cook, you know, damper on sticks and uh, he knew how to make a, a canoe for us. He took my brother and I out and my first platypus was seen paddling down a creek in a, in a canoe made by my dad. So he loved to fish, he loved to explore the nature around us. My mum would often go, oh, Doug. <laughs> but my mum in her own way was just a deeply faithful woman mm. and she she died far too young. She died when she was only 61, of breast Mm. cancer. But her favourite hymn uh, was that, When Peace Like a River Mm. Contains My Soul. And we sang that, you know, through the time that she was very ill. Yeah, she was a very faithful, serving lady. And it was a delight to be part Mm. of that family. Mm. So, I mean, I, I grew up in a home like that. And then because I was a member of the Girls' Friendly Society, I would go to all the girls groups and stuff like that and um, you know that that kid who's always the precocious knows all the answers mm-hmm. that was me i was afraid <laughs> to say that oh, was terrible <laughs> you know I was always the first one to put up my hand and I you know, it was it's like oh I think back now and I think oh my goodness the the transformation of our hearts takes a long time Rashness of kids you know yeah. thinking we know it all but I knew the scriptures I read the scriptures I learned stories at Sunday school loved them Had a very faithful man called Bill Atkins give me a a prayer book when I had my confirmation in year six. I still have it upstairs. And he just wrote, with prayers that your love for God will continue. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I can remember as a girls' friendly society going on a camp when I was about 14 and a half. And I was a bit of a larrikin too. I was a teenager who wanted to have the, you know, the. Have my cake and eat it too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be able to have the midnight feasts and break the rules and eat all the lollies and (laughs) do everything. And we used to crawl out from the back of the House Lodge, which was a a place up at Noosa where they used to have camps. We used to crawl out of our room across a pipe and sit on a tank stand and dangle our feet over the edge and have midnight feasts with lollies because we were sort of the leaders, the older kids. and. I got sprung one night by one of, the, one of the women who was a return missionary from New Guinea. And I don't know why, but she'd taken a bit of a shine to me. And I think she wanted to ex- help me to understand what the gospel meant. I remember her talking one night about how God is not just a grandfather who's kind mm-hmm. and who has a long beard. God is the maker of the universe, the creator of the universe, but he is also our judge. Mm. And for the first time, she put mercy and justice together for me in God. And I was sort of stunned. It was like, oh, it's not all about having fun and being a larrikin and knowing this God who's this grandfather. Up until then, it had been a very kindly Jesus loves me, this I know. Mm. But I had to wrestle with the fact that God was a judge and that I was a sinner, and uh, yeah. So that's when I started my journey to becoming a believer, and went home from that and had a long talk with my minister, who was um, uh, Don Campbell, who became one of the Anglican, the Church Missionary Society secretary for many years. He was the minister in Merion at the time. He was very influential in me understanding the decision I was making.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, just as you're speaking, I'm hearing this person said this thing, and then this other person said this thing. Thank you very much.: And all of these stories I hear, I am so encouraged by people faithfully sharing the gospel and sowing their seeds mm. in, in people's lives mm. and leaving such a big impact.: Absolutely. Mm. on you yeah Yeah. you know I some months ago I think
2: uh, at church we did the thing about you know really saying thank you to the people who had been part of that and it was lovely for our children to come and have a chat to us about the effect that we'd had on their lives and I could say I am very grateful to my mum and dad who are not here now but it was yes and to Billy Atkins and Bill Gedge and Mrs. Saksevsky and a couple of good friends at school who were believers from other denominations and who would just give little correctives when, you know, I'd been a church going probably a covenant child Mm. all my life really. And it wasn't until I was in grade 10 that it was like, ah, no, this is the route I'm going to take. So for the last three years of my life I was working out my salvation as a teenager in the high school mm. and I was very grateful for the correctives of two very good friends who went to other churches in Mergan. and then Don Campbell, Ina Holland and then when I came to university for the, the wonderful Harry Goodhue who was my minister at the Anglican Church at Cooparoo and two very good friends, Miriam Brown and and Rod Story there who just Continued to help mould, yeah. It's profound, isn't it, how God just puts people there and connects because they're willing and obedient uh, to just saying the truth at that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. Again, I I love these stories. I find them encouraging for a lot of different reasons. But I really love it when some of our listeners are teenagers or in their early 20s themselves Mm. Because these stories, I know if I was a teenager myself hearing these stories, I know they would encourage me to speak up
2: absolutely, yeah,
1: and I'm always encouraged when I share these stories with my girls mm-hmm. to encourage them to speak up and they mm-hmm. and they do, mm-hmm. and sometimes you feel the pain of that, okay. mm-hmm. but we also get to see how how the pain now might be in future mm-hmm. the real mm-hmm. real help and ever present trouble for that person absolutely. that you spoke to yeah. so. In and amongst all the ways that you serve other people, you are also a medical doctor, a GP, and a GP counsellor. You run a counselling practice in Brisbane, and uh, you do a fair amount of teaching in and around here, in Australia and abroad. What prompted you to choose medicine as a career path, and then what changed your journey from GP to a GP counsellor?
2: Hmm. It's really, it's really interesting. I think back about my years as a as a kid with a reasonable intellect and. Mum and Dad really wanted us to have a, a reasonable education, but they let us try all sorts of stuff. And I absolutely loved languages and creative arts. So in grade eight, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do science, maths, English, geography, ancient history, arts, you know, dancing, whatever. I wanted to do it all. But of course, when you choose subjects in grade eight, they make you choose between this and this and this and this and uh, so I I tried to be as flexible as I could because I knew I loved a whole heap of stuff so my high school years were essentially loving science I'm a curious person at heart so I would love saying there used to be a guy called uh Julius Miller, who was a very eccentric uh scientist who used to be on the ABC and used to do experiments all the time I would never miss his program <laughs> And my dad and i would talk about things and dad was always a bit of a scientist so i loved the science and yet at the same time i loved the creative arts and i loved my music i did played piano i did elocution art of speech until grade 12 and i loved to draw and in grade 8 i had a a lovely chinese art teacher at my high school who kept saying oh you must do art for, for next year course art was on the same line as something else and I mm. couldn't do art and this other thing so I think it was art and maths day. so if you're going to do science you sort of had to do maths day, which was a bit sad really but uh, I continued to do as many things as I could and then in grade 10 I, I had always had an idea that I wanted to do medicine we had a woman come to our house when I was somewhere between seven and eight And I had the second double bed in the house in my bedroom. And when visiting people would come, I would get out of my bed, go and sleep in my brother's room where we had double bunks, and people would have my bed. You know, when I was a kid, I got a bit resentful about that. Mm -hmm. I had all my nice knick-knacks in the corner, and they would always, you know, move them or do stuff or whatever. But one woman came to stay who was actually a missionary doctor from Tanzania, At the time, she came with the Church Missionary Society and she was the first person who had ever come to me when I was sitting out in the back garden one afternoon doing my homework because my desk was in that room, you Mm. see, and she'd, you know.
1: Commandeered. Commandeered (laughs) is that word,
2: yeah. She'd been allowed to use my room. She came out and sat beside me and she thanked me for the use of your room. She said, I know it's your room. They're your special things, aren't they, you know. And for the first time, an adult had actually appreciated that. So we got on like a house on fire after that, and she was just a delight. And I imagined myself as a missionary doctor after that. I used to love the Paul White stories mm. uh, of mission, you know, the, the missionary doctors and the, um, and the jungle doctor. And then I used to love the, love the stories of the leprosy mission in India. So I would read a lot of stuff about uh, medical mission. So in about grade 10, that dream hadn't gone away, that little bit of an idea, and I'm sure God was planting it in me in some way. But I had these three other things I like to do. So I wanted to do music, be on the stage, (laughs) and do art or something like that, and do medicine. So it was sort of like this toss-up. So I went into grade 11 and 12 doing a couple of extra subjects. I kept my elocution and I kept my music, did them as extra subjects, and I kept doing French as an extra subject so silly me you know did uh, did um you know 10 subjects for for junior and eight subjects for senior instead of six and that was a bit silly but I loved it and as well as that I loved geometric drawing that's the creative part I loved uh, geometrical drawing and uh, doing plans so through my year 11 my teachers kept saying to me look you've really got to think about it do you want to do medicine or don't you and I was a bit conflicted about that I was learning how to pray at the time and learning how to seek wisdom. My mother's wisdom was there's no money in uh, being a a person on the stage. (laughs) And it's also a bit questionable. Musicians usually end up teaching. You're a very, very good pianist, but you'll probably just end up teaching music. So you probably won't be a concert pianist. You're not that good. Um, so she was quite... Harsh, <laughs> harsh truth, man. Harsh, harsh, harsh truth. And uh, look, you know, the creative part was always something you could do at any point. So I didn't really think about being an artist. So medicine won out because it was probably practical. Mm. But I think God was a little bit, like you said before, just prompting people to say things at the time. And a a very wise teacher in grade 12 said to me, you can use your music and your arts and everything else, even if you choose to go to university and do medicine, you can use them. And I thought, oh, how can you do it? You know, you spend six years just, as they used to say, head down, bottom up, Mm. just studying for medicine. And uh, I thought, no, I couldn't do that. But she was right. Right from the beginning, there were things to be involved in. I could belong to the musical society and sing in the choir. At church, I belonged to a group with our friend Craig Berkman. I, he and I sang in a, in a band that he used to write the music for, uh, he and Jan, and a couple of other friends, uh, Davy Malone and... Bronnie Smith and and an ophthalmologist uh, Michael Waldie so yeah we played around the place and in our church for a long time and for beach missions and things so I could be involved in the, in the music and I could see that and then in year four I of medicine uh, I met an, a neurologist who used to use puppets to examine children mm. he would put a Bert and an Ernie puppet on his fingers and he would test children's eyes And then somebody showed me how you can take a a tongue spatula and draw a face on it and make it look down children's throats. All of a sudden, I was in my element. I could be creative as a doctor as well. And it was like, ah, that's what you were saying, God. Yes, it was true. So this lady who said to me, this teacher who said to me in grade 11, it is possible, was absolutely right. So that relaxed me. I loved medicine. I loved doing it. But I always enjoyed the relational parts of medicine as well. And I really loved how people, when they were settled and had a sense of joy and peace around issues, didn't have conflict around their disease, how they would do better. So I was always curious about that. And in year one and year two, as a resident at the hospital, when you're working, you know, something like 80 hours a week, we were working at that stage I would be the one who would always go and find out the story around people's illness mm. when I was taking their, clerking them. Uh, my bosses would probably say I took too long because <laughs> I would always clerk the story as well. But for me, that was always important. So uh, I think I've always been a whole person doctor right from the beginning. Mm. Uh, I had teachers through medicine. And so, yeah, uh, it, was, it was through all of that. And then, you know, the missionary doctor idea didn't ever go away. Um, in fact after I met my husband I was a bit conflicted for a while because we were getting on like a house on fire he's a very quirky funny man (laughs) and uh, we had a lot of fun but then there was this thing of Lord did you really want me to go away here I am meeting him and three months later I'm heading to Pakistan Mm. to do a mission trip to really assess whether I might like to do missionary work in a you know a year or so's time after I graduate And so it was this thing of, is it one or the other? What is it? And, you know, God in his absolute majesty and beauty has worked it out anyway because, as you mentioned before, I do a lot of training overseas now.
1: Mm.
2: And what I'm doing is training others who are indigenous in their country.
1: Mm.
2: And that's actually always better. So I'm teaching people in Thailand who are going to teach in Thailand. teaching Nepalis who are going to work in Nepal or mm. teaching Indians who are going to work in India and do it far better than I can uh, because they know the nuances of their country. But it's mission.
1: Yeah. yeah. And
2: so the Lord was working it out. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's been my journey. And to get into the mental health, well, I think that was a following on with, once again, that whole theme of people just dropping something at a particular time after I'd finished my medical degree and then became a general practitioner because that was the the best way I could see to serve the whole person at that stage. I dabbled in doing psychiatry, dabbled in doing obstetrics, but none of them really fitted like community mental health practice or community general practice for me. So I started my general practice and after some years realized I needed a little bit more mental health training purely for general practice and I went back and did some study. And it was during that time that I met uh, my friend who's a Christian psychiatrist that I do a lot of work with now, who was able to say to me, you know, God can create a place for you to dance that you can do whatever He has gifted you to do. So why don't you watch and see what He does? Mm. I was like, okay. So through the late nineties, after I'd done my counselling degree, I was asking God what what does this look like? What, what does this look like? And slowly people came to join me in an idea of having a community mental health practice where we could be Christians not just in name but Christians in practice, mm. uh, having a place where we could uh, invite people who did have mental health struggles and who could not feel embarrassed to raise the fact that they wanted to trust in God at the same time. Mm. And how did that work? So God has just brought little people together to say, I think we could do that. I think we could do that. What do you think about this idea? And it's come. So we've sort of followed his leading really in with people, just Mm. encouraging us along the way to do something slightly different.
1: Was it unheard of or were there other groups of people in Brisbane and around Australia doing similar things? Not
2: many. When I first started, which was the middle of the 90s, there was a friend of mine, we had dinner together when I was doing my, my master's degree, and he said, you know, I think God is doing something in terms of mental health in Australia, and we've got we've to watch this, because he, he wants to have people in the church working because we have such a lot of people with, with struggles. And he said, I, I don't know what's going on, but something's happening. He said, let's keep a lookout for for people who want to share this journey. And then through a couple of things, working overseas at one point, doing some teaching for a medical consulting company, I met a Christian psychiatrist who lived in Leeds. And he had this idea that he wanted to start a dialogue with people in the church and people in mental health. And he would get them together in the back rooms of pubs across England. (laughs) Uh, occupational therapists, physios, psychologists, GPs, psychiatrists getting together to say how can we serve the church you know how are we the church in our workplaces how can we serve the church in the church as mental health professionals and it was like oh wow that's a novel idea. It was I think in 2003 I was in the States We'd gone for a holiday and met some friends of ours who introduced us to a fellow from Fuller Theological Seminary and I tossed this idea around with him. Actually, it was 2001 because it was just the year before I started here at Foundations. And he said, it's worth it. He said, it's a long, hard dialogue, but it's worth it. Mm. And it was like, hmm, okay. He said, "You know, we need to understand how people are made in the image of God, and yet how damaged that is, and assume damage, mm. and that really got to me. That the idea that we must assume that every part of us is dinted, every part of us is damaged, relationally, physically, mentally, intellectually, emotionally, cognitively, perceptually, everything is damaged. And so, for somebody who is thinking, sort of like me, psychologically or psychiatrically or medically. It was like, ah, okay, so I can assume there's going to be something wrong with everything that everybody does, including me. Yeah. And therefore, why? Of course, we're going to have mental illness. Mm. That makes sense. So it was like, it was a given that mental illness was part of us all, part of the church. So I thought, well, I need to start doing some reading, some exploring, and these people's ideas that had come to me. We spent a lot of time praying about this idea and my colleagues at work said, go for it, you know, really see where it goes. So I started to do a bit of study. I started to do a lot of reading around what people around the world were doing in terms of mental health. Spent a bit of time with John, my Christian psychiatrist friend here and a psychologist friend, another GP who was interested. And then we found a couple of other people like uh, a group in Sydney, a group in Adelaide who were wrestling with the same thing. Because you've got to remember that, uh, you might not have known this, but the church in Australia was very askance at psychological issues. And even mentioning psychology sort of in the 80s, 90s was considered to be a little bit anathema mm. in some places. And
1: also, wasn't that also culturally for Australia, Australians generally? It was yeah,
2: sort of a... very much. And, you know, there is still a stigma. One of the things I remember about being a woman, in a, a young woman in my country town was that my mum used to play tennis, As a teenager, when I went home from uni, I would go and have a game of tennis with her and her her ladies in the tennis club. I I think they went for the Lamingtons and the Swans mostly (laughs) afterwards. But there was a lady there who had been menopausal. And, you know, at menopause, many women have quite profound mental health issues, anxiety. They get quite depressed. Their hormones are going everywhere. And some people even have a bit of perceptual distortion. They feel a bit paranoid and, Mm. you know, they feel dreadful. And there was this lady in the tennis club, and my mum was very kind, and yeah, I'll call her Eve. She said, Eve is struggling, Carolyn. I said, yeah, she's, she is struggling. What's happening, Mum, you know? She said, well, you know, she's now that you're becoming a doctor, I can tell you, she said, you know, her periods are stopping and she's menopausal. And I went, oh, okay. He said, she said, but everybody thinks she's just loopy, so they treat her badly. Oh. I was like, oh, you know, so... I remember that now and think that's the sort of stuff that we in the church and we in a community need to be helping people to understand that this is normal because we are human beings who for even for menopause doesn't happen right Mm -hmm. you know what I mean something goes wrong and our hormones get out of whack and our brain cells get inflamed and and people get distressed and it's not right to be treated as just loopy and shunned so yeah, there's been a whole lot of threads have tied together. There were very few people doing it, but now there's more, praise God. Mm-hmm. And across, I think, my friend's idea came true that God is remarkably doing a wonderful thing, and there's quite a few places now. There's, I just had an email today from a psychologist who wants to you know, talk with us and work out how we can serve different groups of people, social workers, psychiatrists, people who are willing to be believers and who are willing to work expertly in whatever field they are but look at where we are made in god's image and how we can work with that person to restore as much as possible Mm -hmm. so that they can function better Mm -hmm. i don't know if that answers your question it does it
1: does as you're talking i have all these other questions in my mind as well so two very different questions so one question i had was when that friend of yours said that we all get dented. like this there's, we all have issues in so many different spheres. Mm. Did that make you quite introspective, in terms of your own? How did that impact you?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because our journey of transformation, I think, is from one where we we think we are less dented, yeah, and we become, we realise that we are more dented and more damaged, and that grace allows us to function even though and allows our relationships to be good even though we are, we are pretty bad at it, yeah. you know. So I think that was that was sort of late 90s when we were all doing our master's degree, or a bit early in that, late 90s, when we were doing our master's degree together. And yes, I think a little bit like that little kid who always had the answers in, mm-hmm. prim- in primary school for Sunday school answers. I think I was still a little bit like that. I wanted to have all the answers and the more I studied, the more I read, the more I listened to the people who were who were writing in this sphere like David Benner or Mark McMinn or Gary Collins or my friend John or people who were really leading in this very brave sphere of thinking psychologically, I realised that uh, there was a lot of rubbish still in me mm. and but that was okay because it's a norm not that it's right but it's a norm because we're human mm. and we are you know we are embodied spirits we are embodied you know we are souls who who live away from our home and because of that we must expect that and therefore God's happy to shine his light on it mm. and restore it you know and he may not restore all of it but he will restore it so I learned to trust him in that that time and the more I've gone on with it the more I know I'm flawed yeah but how good is that you know that the more flawed we are the more we know how wonderful it is what the Lord has done for us and that he wants to actually walk beside us yeah even though we are still flawed human beings he gives us his presence yeah
1: how remarkable is that it is so remarkable I love it I'm loving this conversation I, I actually had a conversation with my eldest daughter today About this very thing and we were talking about the kind of the disparity between who we think we are and who we actually are and the closer we get to understanding who we actually are how much greater we appreciate the grace of God and how much more you can rest in that and as I'm hearing you talk about your journey I'm remembering so much part of my journey and I think I wrestled the most when I thought I was better than I was But now that I know Absolutely. I'm a real mess, yeah, that's right. It's just so much easier to go. Oh, thank you, God, thank you for what mm-hmm. you've done, because mm-hmm. I am, I am really rubbish at this. <laughs> it, it just puts us in the right space, doesn't mm. it? When when the scripture talks about our
2: hearts being quite deceitful, I, I think realistically, it's talking about not so much that uh, uh, you know we are totally done for but that we are so distorted. Mm. You know, all, everything's upside down and, and roundabout, And we then try to imagine that that's the normal, mm. you know, and that, that that's the way it should be until we start to see God's kingdom and see him in all his glory. And we go, oh, it's not like, like that to be like that at all. Mm. And he, he just says kindly, come. He just invites us to mm. come and see how good he is. And when we see that, yeah, our rags, yeah, all that righteousness, it's just like filthy rags, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And yet we don't feel shut out by that. Mm. We feel invited. And the more we do that, the more we allow God to shine his light on the insides of us, the better that is. And I guess that's why I do what I do, you know, because I have been forgiven so much. And because the more I go on, the more I see him working in me, in my family, in my friends, in the people I work with, the more I think, I just want to do more of this, you know, because people who rest and see him grow, Mm. yeah, and they stop striving, pushing away stuff that they just accept, that, oh, okay, wow, I didn't do real well at that. Okay, let's get up again and try again. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's why I do what I do. What I spend my, a lot of my time doing is helping them to understand why they're not seeing the gospel. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, no, it does. Because our perceptions are so distorted. Our vision, our vision. If I say perceptions, I'm thinking all of our senses. So our touch is distorted. Our sight is distorted. Our hearing's distorted. Our taste is distorted. Everything's distorted, mm. because you know we are very different. Our gut. Intuition is even distorted. You know, people mm. say, oh, I go my gut all the mm. time. You know, I don't yeah. think you can go with only your gut. So, but because our perception is distorted, then we even see Jesus and we distort Jesus. Mm. And so I often spend a lot of my life helping people to see that what they're seeing is not actually the whole picture yeah. or what they're hearing is not the whole picture and helping them to open up
1: mm. their perception
2: and to say, maybe you're missing something and when they actually grasp that they're missing something, then they're more able to listen to the Word of God. When they can see something, they're more able to read. So, for example, I've got a patient who refuses to read anything other than feminist literature. Okay, Now, that's okay. She reads people that she agrees with, and so she's got a very, very severe trauma history, and for her, men caused all her trauma therefore you have to listen to women there was one point in her therapy that she was getting so bogged down in this feminist literature that she could not see that she was actually submitting herself to some quite dangerous people women Mm. (laughs) interestingly enough and one day I just was able to gently say to her I really wonder whether you and I could do an experiment and what would it be like if you actually read some other things and did a comparison of the literature? Because she keeps saying, "I want to go and study in the future when I'm better." And I said, "If you're going to do some study, they're going to ask you to read some stuff." So I wonder if we could do an experiment. This is a lady for whom Jesus was, yeah, not on the radar. Yeah, persona non grata, I imagine. <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean, one, he was a bloke. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that's not right for her. So I suggested that she go to a library and she actually start to look at some other books that weren't written by feminist writers and that her job was to come back to me and tell me what she could compare the ideas out of one. Wow. she started to come and she started to say, oh, that's really interesting. Some of these people are really interesting. Women, she started with women first and some of these people weren't writing from a feminist background. They were writing from other backgrounds. And then that went on for nearly a year. We started, you know, doing these things. And finally, I said to her one day, you know, I know somebody who is a real, real feminist. And she looked at me and said, oh, who's that? And I said, God. (laughs) And and she went, oh, rubbish. The Bible's such terrible literature. And I said, oh, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting if you tried to read some of it at some point. So for the next year, she and her grown-up daughter... Uh, decided they to read a little bit because she had to be realistic about her, you know, and she started to open up her vision and what she could receive. So now she's not a believer yet. Maybe she never will be. I don't know. But that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's opening people so that they can actually see something else because then they'll often see Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now that's where mm-hmm. where I work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people who are traumatised have had to close everything down to survive. Mm-hmm. And then they think that their closed-down space is the norm, mm. and so opening that up and helping them to be safe and secure in themselves will often help them to see the wider world, and then mm. they can start to explore. If they can't get safe, they'll never explore Jesus,
1: mm.
2: you know. Mm. And but the spirit can. So yeah. praying, you know, praying regularly for my clients is something I do every every morning when I start my day. Is just to go through my list and to pray that the Spirit will be doing His work
1: mm. and
2: I'll be doing the part that He gives me to do, yeah. which is to be with my people as His presence. Yeah. 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 I, I call it being in trialogue.
1: In? Trialogue. Okay. <laughs>
2: monologue mm. is when people talk to themselves, yeah. dialogue, dialogue is, is when we talk to each other. Trialogue is when we are both listening to the voice of God yeah. and talking together. It's the living Coram Deo, before yeah. God. You yeah. know? And so I often say to God in the morning, today we live before you. I will try to make my part as rich as possible, inviting them to see themselves and to see themselves in the light of you. Uh, but I trust that you'll be doing your work. And sometimes, mm. look, I think five people have become believers through my counselling ministry in 20 years Mm. not purely by me but just like you said before someone says one thing and somebody else says another and every now and again one will come in and say you know i've watched you for years and there's a reason why you do what you do and it's because of your god isn't it and i've decided i want to i want to explore that and Mm. who do you suggest i go to to explore that and they know that it doesn't have to be me Mm. leading them to any particular prayer or whatever but that they can go and see someone else because I very much believe in working with others, and I'll send them to a pastor or send them to a you know a chaplain or something like that, and mm. they'll often come back. Well, not often. Five of them have come mm. back and said, "I've decided to be a believer."
1: Yeah. Mm. So, and in heaven, yeah. you will find out about all the other ones. Yeah, <laughs> well, <have laughs> a I pray so. Yeah.
2: I think we all will, won't we? Yeah, we will all just rejoice because mm. we will meet the people. And we will know how God has done this wonderful thing. And this new heaven, this new earth will be spectacularly amazing as we glorify in him. Mm. It's
1: Mm. It's going to be a beautiful day. (laughs) A beautiful day. You use the term being psychologically aware. What does that mean for a Christian to be psychologically aware?
2: The way I mean that? The word psyche,
1: the idea
2: is that it is the whole living being. Apart from the spirit that is the life of God that breathed into us, the psyche essentially is the processes of the whole living being. So it's how our body interacts with our brain. It's how our brain interacts with itself. It's how our brain interacts with our eyes so that we perceive things. It's, it's the processes that go to make up a living being. Some people are not aware of how they work Mm -hmm. psychologically. So they're not aware that if they do put themselves in danger, that that's going to have an effect on them and that they might feel anxious. And if they keep doing that, they're putting themselves at risk. So some people are just not aware of how human beings function in the safest and best ways. So I talk about psychological awareness as becoming aware. Of the processes that make us a whole human being yeah so it might be the way we think it might be the way our thinking affects our behavior it might be the way our relationships affect us and then we enact that in some other way and to become psychologically aware is a little bit like it's a little bit like having a little voice on your shoulder I, I used to call that the Jiminy Cricket, Did you yes. know? You Jiminy yes. Cricket? Okay. so it's a bit of an old term now. Jiminy Cricket's not around, I don't think, anymore. But Jiminy Cricket used to sit on the shoulder and sometimes he was a little bit naughty. But it's like having a little person like that on your shoulder that's yourself, who can see everything out there and you can have a dialogue with yeah. each other and go, what do you think about that? That's sort of psychological awareness. Oh, gee, I don't, I don't think that's really good. I think that's a bit unsafe. If I did that, it might be like this. If I did that, it might be like this. Mm. It's that observing at wisely. So, and I think people who are becoming more and more psychologically aware are becoming aware of themselves as a wiser and discerning human being, with the spirit of God helping them to see reality. Mm. Yeah? yeah, that's what yeah. I mean by psychologically aware. Okay. Mm. That totally so, makes sense. And I think we become psychologically aware when we take the time to notice our own response to things and other people's response to things and go, oh, we've influenced each other. Mm. Like you and I having talked tonight and you're talking about things and you've talked about all the threads and all the people. And as you've talked about that, I've been recalling more and more people. And that's a psychological process that Mm. has interacted in between us where I'm becoming more aware of my processing because of something you've done you mm. know and so psychological awareness is a very complicated thing because we are very complicated beings that mm. God has made mm. and he has made us with minds with hearts with perceptions with bodies with this unbelievable breath of life that he's put into us that just activates us and yeah he's made us wonderfully Wonderfully, Mm. and for me, that's not just the physiology. Even though I used to love cutting up frogs and human (laughs) tissue and all that stuff, it was just fascinating. But the but the internal workings of people is even more fascinating. I think, Mm. yeah, Mm. especially the way we can influence each other Mm. and grow and relate, and the way we raise a little child and the little child learns because of what we do and they respond to us.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Uh, This happens to me all the time, I have so many other questions, but I've got to be careful about time. So, I'll leave some of those questions for another time. What other ministries are you involved in at the moment? I mean, clearly your work is quite a ministry in and of itself.
2: Um, It's the majority at the moment. I'm, I'm part of a, a, a not-for-profit organisation called Living Wholeness Proprietary Limited. There's four of us in the, the executive of that, and we have a board. And our mission is to bring high-quality training in Christian counselling in lots of disciplines. So it could be a psychologist, or it could be an OT, mental health OT, a psychiatrist, a GP, a pastor. Really looking at what is good Presence with another human being. What is wise? What is safe? What does not lead to dependency? What is appropriate indigenously, in, in, and and what is universal in the way that God made us? So it's a, a very exciting ministry. We've been going two years as a not-for-profit, but before that, gradually developing and getting all the things needed. So we have got a big base in Asia. Uh, lots of training across. China Mongolia Thailand Cambodia Nepal and and India and we've just recently got 24 people from all of those countries as well as the US and UK came together in Chiang Mai uh, for two weeks and they're now doing their block of a year doing supervision and doing trainings and various other things and then we'll come back together again god willing next year to do a second two weeks and they will become a cohort who will then go out and lead small groups in their countries so that's a a wonderful harvest of people who've been trained in their own countries often in those those disciplines or who are pastors who really want to be able to help in a psychologically aware way in their congregations because we, we know that many of these places are places with trauma, mm. with relationship issues. So that's that's the, the living wholeness work and that's sort of beside the other work that I do which is my mostly my practice, three days a week. The predominant work in my practice now is relationship work. I'm a trained marriage counsellor, uh, relationship therapist and... So I'm doing quite a lot of work there. Part of that is the spin-off for training. So I supervise and train other young counsellors and young doctors in mental health aware work. As well as that, I do a little bit of mental uh, medical consulting for a, a company here in Brisbane, an education company. And we work with doctors who found themselves in trouble in their hospitals or with patients doing a a restorative work with them. And I do some teaching for QTC in pastoral skills. Mm. Um, Yeah, so that keeps me busy. How are you ever going to retire? (laughs) I won't. Oh, my goodness. I, I think things are changing a little in that... I am reducing my hours of practice, so I'm not taking on any new clients at the moment for individual counsel. And uh, I do take on some couples, uh, take on pastoral couples and and couples who are particularly referred to me who may have relationship issues and mental health issues. That's sort of my uh, niche. But my... I think this is the Lord's... No, not I think. I know that... This is another little voice that people have said to me that it is appropriate as we get older to become a teacher and a facilitator of those who are coming through. And I think that the admonition in the Scriptures is to have grandmothers and mothers and daughters and, and older women and younger women and older men and younger men. So I'm making way for others by teaching them and facilitating their growth. So I'm increasing my supervision load at work to really train up some people who are Christians in good therapy techniques that can be used in Christian settings. Mm -hmm. And that's how the Living Holiness thing started as well.
1: I am so excited about this. For years and years and years and years, I've always felt that there is a a lacking in Christian psychologists or Mm -hmm. people who are Mm -hmm. Christians who can help people in the area of, of mental health. So I'm encouraged from that perspective, but also... To be able to equip churches
2: mm.
1: with people in the, church, in the church, whether they are oh. employed yes. formally yes. or whether they're not, whether they're lay people, to be able to yeah. get alongside other people. It's and that to walking help them.
2: together with yeah. presence, but having some skills that yes. can help people to maintain a connection with someone who's struggling. Yeah. I think the hardest thing in the world is to maintain a connection with somebody who's anxious or depressed or who has a psychosis or who has an addiction, or who's just floundering and may not have any diagnosis. Mm. And I I, I think we don't have to think diagnosis. We have to think disconnection. People struggle and they become disconnected and we don't understand them very well. And if we just work harder at connecting with them, we'll understand that they're struggling and we Mm. can walk with them in that suffering. And I think we can do that whether we're the next-door neighbour or the person in the street, or the person who sits in the pew, we can sit and we can ask questions and be safe, solid people to do the journey with them.
1: Yeah, Mm. yeah.
2: And that's God's heart. He says, come, sit together.
1: Mm -hmm. You
2: know, Mm -hmm. your sins, they were like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. But he invites us to sit together. And he invites us, you know, he says, "Come, come to the waters by... Buy wine and bread with no money, you know. He gives mm. it to us freely. Come. And it's invitational. We've got to do the same mm. with people who are struggling, people who are dinted images of God, dinted, dinted psyches, and learn how to do that well. Yeah.
1: Mm. So mm. your ministry is going to be able to equip people more mm. and more That's to be able to do that. And that's
2: the plan, yeah. Mm. Which
1: is so exciting because I think the reality is that for many people it's scary to be mm. that invitational person and to yeah. ask the questions and yeah. and I think as human beings we we want to have the answers
0: mm. and
1: I mean I know that that's always been my struggle is I want to be able to help somebody It's taken me years and years and years to realize I actually don't need to be exactly. have the answers in order to help yeah. somebody I
2: read something recently that actually talked about it, it was sort of an article about having a difficult conversation and this lady wasn't a believer, but she actually had reframed the idea of, in, of difficult conversation to the important conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's, yes, it might feel difficult to us, but purely because it's difficult, it's worth us wrestling with.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. It's that sense that, just because we don't know how to do it and because we don't have the answers doesn't mean it might not be the most important person, the most important conversation that that person has today mm. where you go, I see you and yeah. I really want to understand you. Yeah, Help me to understand you more. Help me to understand where you stand. What does it look like from where you are? You know? mm. Because when people know that and experience that, I believe that they experience love.
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely what's big on your radar at the moment what are you most passionate about at the moment and you can even say Gwen (laughs) oh I definitely will say Gwen
2: (laughs) Uh, it's always a hard question isn't it when people say what's on your radar I think I'm loving being a grandma
1: yeah
2: a nana is a very special thing I think to to be a grandparent is very special so it's taken a long time and uh darling children now have this beautiful little girl and very specially she is named for her my mum
0: oh
1: i didn't know yeah
2: my mum was gwendoline gwen she was and we gave elizabeth the second name gwendoline l-y-n after my name carolyn
1: not caroline (laughs) that's right
2: and i was actually named for my grandma My dad loved his mother-in-law. So Carrie Tudman was Caroline. But when I was born in 1955, he came to the hospital and he said, oh, Gwen, I think she should be a Caroline. And my mum said, no, Doug, it's too old-fashioned. And so he went home, he slept on it, and he came back the next day because women stayed in hospital a lot longer back then. And he told me that he said to her, well, we'll modernise it and we'll make it Caroline. (laughs) And so when they told us that they had little Gwendolyn, we were delighted. And my aunties, my mum's sisters, because my mum died of breast cancer when she was 61, and my her sisters miss her dearly. And when I rang them, honestly, my 80, 82-year-old aunt just about had conniptions in yeah. the kitchen. Oh, she's named after my sister. So that was lovely. Um, so, yeah, loving Gwenny is, I think, probably the biggest thing on my radar to be a to be a wise nana to be like the the women that paul encouraged you know as he wrote when he he, you know he he esteemed those women who Mm -hmm. had been wise women and i think to be that for our little girl and for my own children is really important the other thing that's on my radar is that we have just bought a little house in the country We've been looking for some years for something inside of gum trees and mountains Mm. because my DNA just really flickers when I smell gum trees. and It's very much part of ministry for us because we firmly believe we want to invite those uh, who need a break to have it for a weekend. And, I mean, we may may rent it out and stuff like that. But if we'd like to be able to invite people to come up and have a rest with us and go for walks around the, the creek and see the platypus and yeah that sort of thing and we love bicycling so it's got a bike track fairly close by and we can ride to the rail trail which comes down from the mountains down to Ipswich. so we thought it might be a good jumping off point to that so being in the country for part of the time um that's the second one i guess but look i think even more than that as i think about it um I've been really encouraged over the last couple of years by reading some of the books by uh, aging Christians and really was struck by reading Dr. Packer's book, Mm -hmm. uh, J.I. Packer. In one of the chapters, Dr. Packer talked about how when we get old, we sometimes look back and think that everything back there was good. Mm. And he challenged us to keep saying, God has got everything up there in hand, and that the best is yet to come, mm-hmm. that he has finished this work. He's finished the salvation work of the cross, but he is still finishing. Mm-hmm. And he got, he told ageing Christians to guard against the idea that everything was better back then. Mm-hmm. And I think as our brains get older, as our bodies get older, people... And me included, I'm starting to realise, you know, bad legs, sore hands, that sort of stuff if, if you do things. It's really easy to say, oh, it was always better. But I think he encouraged us to say, no, God is still present now and he will be present and he will be present and he will be present and he is finishing He is finishing what he started mm. and for us all was to look forward to that. And he, he actually went so far as to call it, sinful thinking mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and that
2: we need to repent of that so I think deeper than deeper than the activities that you, you asked me what, what's on my radar and to give my children my grandchildren my friends the the awareness of that
1: mm-hmm.
2: that, that God has done it in Jesus and he's continuing to do what he is doing and he will do that far after I'm gone. Mm. But then in the meantime, there will be the most wonderful relationships that we can build and I'm, I'm looking forward to enjoying being an old lady. I think that's on my radar. I love that. Um, <laughs> I, I was talking to Glennie Wright recently. I was sitting at church playing the piano a couple of months ago and beside me came Nicholas, Glenn's son. playing the drums and at the end of one song I looked at him when we were practicing and I said "Nickel, it's so good to have you there it used to be your dad and I said I was much younger then and your dad and I used to play together in the in a a group years and years and years ago and he sort of looked like this you know and I said I think this is this is a message from God this is like this is the way it's meant to be. Yeah, We get older and new people come along. God's always preparing the next generation for doing the next thing. And we've got to look at that with joy mm. and thankfulness because that's what he does. Mm. So I'm looking forward to being an older lady, watching all those young people at our church take up the reins, do things differently from what I might have done. Or well, they might do it similarly, but doesn't matter. They're, they're finishing their race with joy. Mm. And they're working out their salvation with all. So and I'm looking forward to that very much.
1: Your awareness of that is the beautiful gift that you give to them because it gives them the space mm, to so. to grow and to learn themselves Whatever. as opposed to because I think the temptation is to go is to voice back in my day.
2: Back in my day.
1: Um or that's not the right way to do it or I
2: think that's the big one. I I don't want to say that's not the right way to do Mm -hmm. it. I just want to say, Nickel, great, let's go. Yeah, I want to play drums with you now, you know. And to watch my daughter. She'll do parenting a little different from the way we did it. And, you know, my sons and they'll do things differently from the way I did it. But that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, it's okay. And I'm gonna watch God unfold his purposes in Mm -hmm. that.
1: Mm-hmm. you saying all this is resonating so much because it's been these kind of things have been in my mind so much with this whole COVID-19 thing mm-hmm. and you know there's there's so many scary things out there in this world and there's so yeah. much to worry about mm-hmm. and I have in this last week been reminded through reading the scriptures thinking through all of these things that what is the very worst thing that could possibly happen mm-hmm. You know, the the we could end up with every conspiracy theory on the planet coming true, and so what? because at the end of the day, God is still in control Absolutely. and the worst thing that can happen to me is somebody can take my life from me in the most awful, terrible way or take the lives away of the people who love me or mm. you know maim them terribly, and yet God is still in control and he is still present and he's still he's there. not and he's yeah. not just
2: he's not just in control in some gone up there a yeah, long way yeah he, uh, he has actually spoken to us by his son mm. and he said his son to be right with us and then he, when his son went to sit at his right hand his spirit sits with us you mm. know uh, there is nothing better than that it doesn't matter what happens to us and yet at the same time it's hard for all that other stuff to happen yeah yeah, yeah. and so we've got to be realistic. It'll, it won't be pleasant. Mm. It will be painful. If all these catastrophic things happen, it will be pretty ugly.
1: Mm.
2: And they will happen at times. It will be mm. ugly. And yet we can know that we have him both in us and around us as a presence. Yeah. He yeah. promised us his presence. Mm. And even if I die. You know, you're talking Job, aren't you? You're, mm. you're talking the story of the scriptures as Job experienced that and, yeah. and recognized his place in the universe was really tiny compared to the God who made it all and stays in control and is present. And then Esther, you know, that story of this is what I have to do and I will do it. Mm. And and then we we see the the in the New Testament, you know, Peter and Paul and you know the things that they did. And it was the presence of God that mm. continued. They knew. The voice of their master, yeah.
1: yeah. and every one of those stories and all the things that they had to go through, their humanity was very obvious and very present, very So their obvious. flaws also were very obvious and very present. And another chat I had with somebody else, she was saying that she expected, she expected that she would face suffering with sort of a, a glow of of you know having something her a bit different, yeah, yeah. Just mm-hmm. that, feeling that assurance would. Therefore, impact her dealing of suffering, in a in a in a admirable and righteous way, an I suppose. And that was not an experience. <laughs> but then to realise that actually it will hurt. Yeah, exactly. Same. And yeah. and and she could still have that assurance while falling apart. <laughs> Right. And the, whole, the two could be held in tension with each they, other. They can actually be together. Mm. There's
2: nothing abnormal about that. Yeah. And I think the story of Jesus tells us that. Yeah. You know, the life of Jesus tells us that, that there is nothing odd about suffering and presence of God. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's a theology that's dear to my heart, yeah. the theology of suffering. And uh, as I sit with my mental health patients, you know, they are suffering wretchedly sometimes. Mm. And yet many of them will be able to attest to the love of God and the capacity to be able to go, oh, this is really tough, Jesus, mm. you know? Mm. And that, yes, it's okay to say so. Yeah. No no glow, no, <laughs> no righteous, oh, I'm wonderful because I'm, you know, suffering this, or somehow you are slightly diminishing my suffering because of it, but just because you're present, we can do it together.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm always reminded of the Cory ten Blum story. Story because her sister Betsy was the glowing, righteous mm, woman right. who, who just coped with suffering in the mm. most beautiful and admirable way, and Corey was so contrasted in that. That's right. And yet, both of them yeah. had the same God who yeah. loved them the same, same way, way. Yeah. and used them both.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: And you know, Corey got to live mm-hmm. until yeah. she was mm, I know, oh, very, I can't even remember, I've just finished, very old, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and her last five years, or last three, three and a half years, were as a severe stroke victim.
2: Yeah, very, very severe stroke, wasn't yeah. it? That's right. Mm. And
1: yet she's...
2: She maintained that awareness of his presence. Mm. Yeah.
1: And other people felt that. Other people knew it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very encouraging. Mm. What's keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian at the moment?
2: It's mostly the encouragement of other people. Really, it is. Meeting together with others, my living homeless friends, John and David and Suzanne, we meet about every three weeks for about three hours on a Friday morning That's prayer and thoughtfulness and someone always brings a reading and we challenge each other to think in a godly way about the trainings and stuff. They really encourage me. My learners encourage me. They push me on always to think other things, to read the scriptures with a with a a more wide-open brain, my husband. People at church, you know, just little comments, little emails. People send things. Well, the Spirit, you know, just like everybody, I'm flawed in my daily routines. And many times you'll just know that little push of the Spirit that says you're not spending enough time just thinking about me. Yeah. Imagining, you know, me bringing to mind what God has done. You know, the Spirit very much maintains that, but it's mostly the body of Christ. Yeah. And people at work, my staff encourage me, my patients encourage me, the Word encourages me. I, it comes from so many places, I think. And, and I think I'm. I can't remember the actual phrase that Lewis uses, but one of C.S. Lewis's books really talks about that sense of you know being able to push each other on. I can't think which one it was, but I read something when I was... and it, the, the Importance of Not Being Alone mm. in Your Faith. And I guess when we do our teaching, one of the things that we really push and model for our friends in Asia because it's it's an interesting culture sometimes that we're training in they have a very corporate identity they believe but it's actually not very corporately connected
1: Mm.
2: it's actually quite disconnected in so many ways Uh, many of them talk about the perception of harmony or the perception of family now it happens in our own world as well it's not not just an Asian thing we talk about how that's the kingdom way. The kingdom is about a body. And it's a, it's not a body that can have a head here and an eye here and a hand here and they all can work separately. Nuh-uh. they have to be connected. And that we want to encourage them to keep reaching out to their brothers and sisters and say, what am I to you? Am I a hand to you? Am I an eye to you? Am I a foot to you? What what do you need me to be right now? And I think it's that Teaching people the truth of that and seeing them do it is so encouraging. And when they just go, aha, that's why it's been such a struggle here. We haven't reached out to our brothers and sisters who are helped to help us think together about this problem. And when they do, the church just, you know, what they're doing just just grows. Mm. Yeah, It becomes more like the Church of Christ. So... All of those things encourage me to keep yeah. standing firm. Seeing God work in his world, I think. Yeah. That's probably what it is, and having his people. And look, you know, just, just recently being able to be part of Church Online, I have found it remarkably good just to be able to see everybody, just to be able to see all those people still being faithful. Mm-hmm. That encourages me. Yeah, all those things, those things, I think.
1: That's awesome. Hmm. Now, I, I didn't prepare you at all, so don't worry if, if you can't okay. do this. But Tori and I were chatting a couple of days ago, and she was saying what she would have really liked to add to our podcast is to ask people what either is their favorite Bible passage or verse, or has been something that's really struck them lately, and to share what that is, but also to read it. She said she just sees a great importance and in hearing women read scripture to each other. So if you have something for, for me, that would be great.
2: <laughs> I love Peter. So yeah. the fact that we're studying Peter at the moment is great. I, I guess I used to like 2 Peter 1, 3 down to 15. It, it was very precious to me at a particular time. And the words that really used to strike me as I was going through my medical school was to make every effort to supplement my faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. and It was this sense of continually growing all these things. And as a mental health worker, for me, each of those comes from a different part of the living part that we are. And it's a whole process that God brings. But the part I liked most about it was when, when Peter, in verse 12, talks about, I, rem- I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And then he says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, <laughs> I'm, I'm remen- reminded of my granny when I read that verse because she used to, okay, she used to say, "I'm just going to stir you up. You just got to know." She loved her Bible, uh, my nana, and she was about four foot eleven tall and about as about as wide as she was high. She was the most gorgeous lady. But when I understood that Peter was actually saying. Keep encouraging each other, because he's referring back to times when we we are ineffective, ineffective or unfruitful, Mm. because we've forgotten that we have been called and elected. Mm. It's like you know, and so he he keeps saying, "I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder," and I keep thinking that we don't know when the putting off of our body will be, and so he goads us. And says, "Yeah, just while I'm here, I'm going to remind you." Uh, so I love that passage, and I. And then he says, "And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things." So I guess that's one of my favourites. But just recently, I did some study. I had to do a talk when at a conference in Asia recently, and I cannot go past this because. We, it, it was about uh, being Christ in the counselling room and I really felt that I wanted to encourage the people in in this audience to look for the imperishable things, not to look for the things that were behaviours or they could put on a particular behaviour or do a particular intervention or, you know, just because they were a CBT therapist or an RET therapist or whatever therapist, but that they were actually noticing the little imperishable changes that were happening in themselves, in the client, in the relationship, and to look for that Mm -hmm. and to linger on that and to accentuate that. Because Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, undefading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
1: Oh, it's beautiful.
2: Mm, it's a wonderful passage. Mm. And the more I go back to it, the more I see written in that the work that we all have to do, mm. which is to to look for where God is working in people, because he is, he's, mm. he's calling and calling and inviting, and to look for the little imperishable changes, to watch for the trials and then say, what is he forming in you? to look for the the joy that Mm. comes as we walk through that trial and know his presence. It's beautiful. It's great.
1: Can you imagine if we did that quite consistently, Mm -hmm. how much more of an encouragement we would be to each other? Absolutely. Yeah, amen. (laughs) It's very encouraging. Well, I mean, I think we've, we've got... The podcast and a half. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you it's so very much. It's mm. uh, I can I can chat forever. I'm very encouraged, and I pretty much can guarantee that everybody listen to oh, this will be okay. encouraged too. Mm. Yeah. Well, mm. it's the wisdom that your life and the Lord has given you that you give to others, and you're very generous with your wisdom. So, thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. So much.
2: I don't think it's mine. Um, I can't hold it you know what I mean it's not it's not intellectual property it's not mine so so how can I you know it has to be given away because it's not ours yeah maybe we'll be reminded
0: of that Awesome. we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Lydia Project we would love you to share this episode with others whether that be by word of mouth social media or leaving a review on iTunes You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Special thanks goes to our platform host, The Gospel Coalition Australia. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper. And voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.